Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. This week is a standalone message and not part of a series. We focus on the idea of anxiety and observe the rhythms and ways of Jesus as a non-anxious person and how we can implement those principles into our lives to achieve that same cadence of peace. We hope you enjoy this message. Yeah, and welcome. Again, everyone, welcome. So glad you're here. So glad you've decided to join us and worship with us tonight. Again, my name is Matt Dinsky. I serve here with an incredible team on the student ministry team of uh, incredible people, and it's such a blessing to be in here with you. Uh, over the past, I don't know, seven weeks, we've been in a series called Heaven and Earth Collide, uh, and, and we wrapped that series up. We still have the graphic up, but it's done. It's done. Hey, guys. Good to see you guys. Love you guys. Y'all are the best. How are y'all? Good, good. Uh, hey, Caroline. Welcome. Yes. Um, I, Hey, JC. Welcome. What's up, buddy? All right, no more shout-outs. Um, we've been in this series over the last seven weeks. It was awesome. Last week, we did a live Q&A, anything on heaven, earth, or hell. Pastor Jim Thompson was in here. You guys were texting in your questions. I know. I know. We wish we had him. But you guys were texting in your questions, and uh, we were interacting with those. It was a great week. If you missed that, go check out our podcast. Go check out our YouTube channel. It, seriously, um, really, really good stuff. Go check it out. So next week, though, we have our worship night. And the week after that, uh, one of our graduated students will be teaching. I'm not going to say who. Could be JJ. And, uh, and, then the, and, then the week, and then the week after that, uh, one of our current students will be sharing her story. And then the week after that is Christmas United Night. So really, like, that's the semester, man. And so we have this week, this, like, wonky week, uh, where it's like, all right, we can't start a series because everything else is already taken. So we have one standalone night. And so I thought, man, if I have a night, just one night, it's going to be one sermon. It's not part of a series. What would I want to say? And as I was praying about it uh, pretty quickly, I, I just landed on the idea of anxiety, uh, which I think is so appropriate for your generation and mine too, but, but really your generation. So I want to talk about anxiety tonight, or worry, or fear. You can put whatever word you want in there, but anxiety. Here's what I need. I need you guys to bear with me a little bit because I've been sick for like a week now, maybe a little more, and maybe you can hear it, but my voice does not have a lot of power. Um, and so I, I even have water up here because I might have to like pause and take a sip. It's like really dry. So I, I drink water, man, you know? It's just one of the things about me, dude. I do. I do. FYI. It's on my Instagram profile, drinker of water. So, um, so bear with me. I don't have a powerful voice tonight, but hang in there. But, um, but I want to talk about anxiety tonight because I just feel like uh, it is such an appropriate topic. Uh, maybe you guys know this, uh, but like there are people who study generations and things like that. Do you know that your generation, this room right here, Generation Z is the name of you guys, uh, your generation statistically, by leaps and bounds, struggles with anxiety and fear and worry and loneliness and depression statistically off the charts compared to every other single generation ever that's ever been recorded. Uh, the word epidemic is thrown around a lot for COVID, but truly there's an epidemic of anxiety as well amongst your generation and somewhat in mine, millennials. Uh, we're kind of there too, but, but you guys are like spiking the charts, man. And so there's tons of reasons of like, why, why could it be this, could it be that? Um, but in a lot of my conversations with you guys, that comes up, this idea of like worry or like, man, I'm just fearful. I like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I, I, I can't control what's about to come and I don't know what to do about that. And what do you do with everything you're hearing? And, I mean, you guys, 
you guys have, whether you're homeschooled or private schooled or public school, give it up, give it up for the homeschoolers in the room. Yes. I love you guys. <laughs> Homeschool. Uh, you know, no matter, no matter what model or method of schooling you guys have, in a given year, you have over 3,000 hours of just classroom time. Maybe 2,500 to 3,000 hours of classroom time. That, that does not account for homework. That does not account for projects. That does not account for the, the pressure you're feeling of grades. You're also feeling the weight of like what comes after high school. What college am I going to go to? What do I study? There's, there's this pressure being put on you right now to make decisions as a 15, 16, 17-year-old that will affect the outcome of your life. Like that's how it feels, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I got to get this right or my whole life's going to be ruined. I mean, they're asking you to define aspects of your life before your brain is even fully formed yet, before you even know who you fully are yet, and you feel the pressure of that. It is absolutely there. You've got extracurricular stuff. Some of you guys are in sports. Where are my athletes at? Yeah. You guys know. You guys know I love sports with all my heart. <laughs> yeah, athletes. Uh, go sports. Uh, some of you guys, so you feel the weight of like competition. You guys good there with your phones on? You guys good? Okay, cool. I'm just saying. I just want to make sure he's good, guys. I just want to make sure he's good. It sounded like something important there. But I do, think, I do think we should put it away and focus. But you guys got extracurricular stuff. You have sports. Some of you guys are in bands. Some of you guys are musicians. Some of you guys are in student government. You guys have all these things. Some of you guys, some of you guys have a job. Some of you guys are holding it down with a job, and you're trying to help your families. And I've talked to some of you guys, and your families are struggling, and you've picked up a job to try to supplement some of the things at home. And some of you guys have great home lives, but some of you don't. And for some of you, going home is terrifying. In fact, you do everything you can to avoid it. You, you have a broken home. You don't have good relationships with your parents, with your siblings. You try to get out of the home as much as possible. You're trying to figure life out right now. You've got to maintain friendships. Some of you are dating. Holla, holla. And you're trying to figure out, like, how do we have, a, how do I have my boo in the mix, right? You're trying to figure that out. You're trying to figure out self-care. Like, how do you take care of yourself? How do you get enough time for yourself? How do you sleep enough? And, and, and what do you find time to, to take care of your own soul? The average, the average person between the ages of 13 and 25 will get 3,000 hours or more of screen time this year. That is more than you're in school. That's a full-time job. And so you're, I mean, there's so much there as well. You're being bombarded with information. You're being bombarded with advertisement. These social media companies, like we like to think they have our best interests in mind. They don't. They make profit off of your addiction. And so they put things in front of you that will continue to get your attention and clicks and stuff like that. Fear is a major tactic within that. And so you're being introduced to a world of news articles and headlines and all these things going on. You have crises going on. I mean, I've had so many conversations with students about the Travis Scott concert. And what happened there? You just have so much in front of you. And it's like, dude, what do we do with all this? Is there, like, how do we filter this? Is there a system to understand these emotions? Like, how do we ground ourselves? Does the scripture speak to anxiety? Does Jesus have anything to say to anxiety? Who do we even talk to about this? Because it seems like all my friends are in the same boat. And it's nice to talk to them, but it doesn't solve anything. And I, I don't feel like I can talk to my parents and adults just kind of tell me to, you know, suck it up or whatever. Like, how, how do we figure out anxiety? And so I thought tonight could be a cool night just to go down that road and talk about worry and fear and anxiety 
and see what Jesus might have to offer towards that. Because if you read the Gospels and you look at the person of Jesus, he seems to be a non-anxious person. It doesn't mean he never experienced fear. That's not what I mean. It doesn't mean he never experienced worry. It doesn't mean his soul was never torn over things. It doesn't mean he he never was nervous about things. It doesn't mean he, he didn't want to escape certain realities he was in. But he, he seems to be a non-anxious person. And your response to that might be, oh, but, but Matt, he's Jesus. It's God. Of course, God's not anxious, right? Trump card. He's God, of course. But don't dismiss the fact that he was also 100% flesh and bone human who experienced every emotion we experience, who experienced every temptation we experience, who can empathize with you, the book of Hebrews says, in every way imaginable because he is one of us. So yes, he's God, but he's also human. And by becoming human, he stepped into our world, including our emotions. And yet he does not seem to be an anxious person. He's not driven by fear. He's not driven by worry. There's no complex like, oh, I can't control things. What's happening? Like, how does he do that? Is there anything we can learn from Jesus? And so I want to look at a story tonight. Here's the disclaimer. I am not standing up here pretending to be the expert on anxiety. I'm not, I'm not trying to present some like, hey, here's the sermon, and if you just apply all of this, you'll never be anxious again. Congratulations. That's not my claim. I think anxiety is way more multifaceted than that. I think, I think for some, a partnership with medication is the route. I think for others, it might just be this kind of cultural catch-all word. It's like, oh, I struggle with anxiety. Well, maybe you do, but it, it may not be as severe as someone over here. Maybe it's just your lifestyle. Maybe there's just some different practices we can introduce that could act as a counter cycle to the things you're currently doing that cause anxiety. So I'm not, I'm not an expert by any means, and I'm not saying this is one size fits all. I just think there are things modeled by Jesus that if we apply them, if we come under Jesus and submit to his ways of living and then adopt them as our own, there is value that I think is very, very clear when it comes to the world of anxiety as seen in Jesus. What makes him a non-anxious person? I'm not trying to say this will cure your anxiety. I'm just saying I think these ways of living are so, so helpful and will absolutely be a benefit if you're in the room and you struggle with fear, anxiety, worry, any of those things, all right? So Matthew chapter 14, that's where we're going to be tonight. What is going on in the world of Jesus as we approach Matthew chapter 14? Here's the context in the life of Jesus at this moment. His public ministry is going and it's going strong. Jesus around this time in his life is at the peak of his popularity. Everybody wants to follow Jesus. Everybody wants to hear what he's going to say next. Everyone wants to see what he's going to do next. He literally has thousands and thousands and thousands of people seeking him out. It's like the nomadic lifestyle. They've kind of like, we don't, did they quit their job? We don't know. Did they give up their home? We don't know. It just seems like thousands of people are moving with Jesus. It's the crowd that is following him and seeing what he will do and what he will teach and and what's going to happen next. He's at the peak of his popularity. And so he's feeling the weight of it, right? Like, I know sometimes it's easy for us to think of Jesus as like, oh, Jesus was like a good moral teacher. Like, oh, look at what he says. This is so great. But Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher. He was literally a a revolutionary. He has come to introduce a way of thinking that once adopted will change lives and change the world. And that's not an exaggerated statement. Literally change the world. He is bringing in the kingdom of God and the ways of the kingdom of God. 
and the ways that we operate within any system of this world, political system, life, relational system, religious, any system, Jesus redefines it all. He has a weight on his shoulders that you nor I can really imagine or fathom. Thousands are following him from place to place. And he has this kind of weight on him. And right before this, his cousin, John the Baptist, is murdered. And Jesus was very close to his cousin. And he was murdered, um, well, for some things that he said. He was kind of an off-the-cuff guy. But, but primarily because of what he was saying about Jesus and his belief in Jesus and his connection to Jesus. And Jesus is feeling that weight that my cousin was just murdered because of this message that I am bringing. So Jesus is in the realm of pressure, the pressure you're feeling day to day. He's, he's there, and yet he's, we don't see him grasping at the walls for control. We don't see him kind of melting down in frailty. Like, what is it about Jesus that gives him resolve in the face of those kinds of pressures? And how do we maybe adopt some of his lifestyle to embrace some more non-anxious ways of living. Matthew chapter 14, that's where we're going to be. Verse 22. We're going to read this passage all the way through. We're going to end at verse 33. Here we go. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, these are the thousands I'm talking about the thousands and thousands of people, that that was the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. We're going to come back to some of these things. They're very important. Catch them if you can. When evening came, so around sunset, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus is on the mountain, he's alone, he's praying, he sees his disciples way out on the lake, caught in a storm, and yet he continues to pray. Like, I, I, I want you to see the way that Matthew is writing this here. Jesus is not surprised by the storm once he gets out into the lake. It's not like he gets off the mountain and then steps down. He's like, ooh, there's a storm, <laughs> my poor disciples. From his vantage point, Jesus can see the storm up on the mountain. He can see the front rolling in and he can see the boat. He knows they're in the storm and he stays where he's at. This is important to understand what Jesus is doing with his disciples. The wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's a Roman way of keeping time that's between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means Jesus has left his disciples in the storm for a minimum of nine hours. Sunset would have been around 6 p.m. So a minimum of nine hours. He's just watched them struggle and suffer out there. Maximum of 12 hours. Maybe it's 6 a.m. by now. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on H2O, walking on the sea. He's never done this before. This is a new miracle. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and cried out, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. The the Greek word here is where we get the word phantom. So a lot of Hebrew mythology revolved around water. And they thought a lot of evil things came out of the water. There was a, a myth even surrounding this lake that those who died on this lake, their souls would haunt the lake. And the disciples had bought into this, much like we buy into ghost stories today. 
And you can't really blame them. They're like sleep fatigued. They're delirious. They've been in the storm nine hours at least. The waves are huge. The wind is beating their ship. I mean, who knows what they're seeing out there. The lightning cracks. And for a brief instant, the whole thing lights up and they see someone walking towards them. You might cry out as well. It's a ghost, right? Like we are dead. Jesus responds and says, take heart. It is I. Look at these, look at these last words. Do not be afraid. And if you're in the room tonight and you're struggling with anxiety and you're struggling to control your fear, you come to this verse and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's my problem all along. I guess I've just allowed myself to fear. So tomorrow morning I'll wake up and I'll tell myself, don't be afraid, and I'll just turn it off, right? Like, it's not that simple, and you know it's not that simple. That's why we struggle with it. So how can Jesus make this claim? Think about the context and the circumstances they're in. A literal storm, we use storm metaphorically all the time. Oh, man, I'm just going through a storm. Like, my life is a storm right now. They're in the literal storm, and Jesus looks at them. They're terrified. They think they see a ghost. The ship is about to capsize. The waves and wind are beating them. They are sleep-deprived, pulling an all-nighter. If you've if you read this passage in Mark, then you'll know they've missed a bunch of meals, meals as well. They're starving, they're hungry, they're fatigued, they're done and at the end of the rope. And Jesus strolls up and is like, hey, don't be afraid. Okay, but how? It's not that easy to not be afraid. So how can he command that of them? This is not a suggestion, that's a command. Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. This is an amazing act of faith. Like, you probably know the story well enough to know that Peter's about to sink, right? You know that, right? Spoiler alert. But, it, but it's an amazing act of faith because the boats they, they would have used would have been high above the water. Like, it, it would have been like, this is the edge and the floor is the water. It's, it's not just like Peter, like, threw his legs over the edge and then, like, put his feet on the water and, like, oop, here I go. Like, he literally... <laughs> In the storm, would have had to been standing there. I mean, the whole ship's going. And, and he, <laughs> thank you, Tommy. And, and he would have had to look at the water in front of him and actually take a step down into it. Full faith to believe that I can do this too if Jesus allows it. The amount of faith from Peter in this moment is astounding. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water, came to Jesus. But then he saw the wind, he saw the waves. He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out a really honest prayer, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached his hand out and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith. Now, in the original languages here, the Greek, that, that of there is not actually there, and so it's more like a nickname. Like, oh, you little faith. Like, anyone ever seen Land Before Time? Y'all rolling with Littlefoot? Okay, so it's like that. It's like, oh, you little faith, okay? It's more like a nickname. Now, you could maybe interpret this as a dig from Jesus, like, ah, you little faith. (laughs) You know? Or it might be be full of empathy and compassion, like, ah, you little faith. I got you, buddy. Reaching his hand down. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, everything shut off, everything calmed down. 
And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, what's amazing about this, if, if we're reading this and you know the Gospel of Matthew and you're like, man, this story sounds really familiar, it's because in Matthew chapter 8, there's another story that's strikingly similar. The disciples are in a boat, they're out on the same lake, a storm comes along, Jesus calms it. Like, it's a, it's a moment of faith. And we're actually going to go to that in a minute. But this is the second storm story in the Gospel of Matthew. And so what I'd love to do for our remaining time is just comb through it and see what about Jesus, what about his ways of living, what does he model in this story that can help us think through our anxiety, think through our worries, think through our fears in this life. Some of you guys may recall a a story I told a couple years ago now. Uh, My oldest son, uh, I do... I, I do have kids. I knew I know some of you are still confused about that. Every week there seems to be confusion. I have offspring, uh, in fact. Three of them. Three of them. I do have a wife. I do have a wife. I, I did the, you know, I, I got married and then had the kids. That's just my model. That's just how I did it. Um, I do have kids. I have three. Yeah. I, yep. Take two. Take two and then add one. Um, two boys and a little girl. Two boys and a little girl. Uh, yeah, Trent is the oldest one, Gray, and then Olive is my little baby girl. Yeah, good questions. These are good. I know you guys don't know this at all. Um, so a couple of years ago, like a, like a splendid dad that I am, I was watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse with my oldest. Yeah. Yes. At first, the, the intro song was bearable, and now it grates on my brain. I I hate that song so much. Um, We were watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which is like, dude, it's it's designed for little kids, right? Like, it's kid-friendly. But on this particular episode, this gorilla had escaped from the zoo. And he's like running all over town. And Mickey and um, Petey, the big dude, Pete, Pete, the other dude, the like villain, I don't know, Pete. Uh, Mickey and Pete are running all over town trying to find this gorilla. And admittedly, they gave the gorilla like eyebrows that like go. (laughs) They gave the gorilla eyebrows that like go down, right? Like they made him look kind of mean. He had a sharp, he had a couple of sharp teeth. And I was watching this with with my son. He was probably three and a half at the time. And, And he tensed up, he tensed up. And it's Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. I had no reservations. It's not like I was like on guard. We weren't watching like Freddy Krueger. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, we got to skip some scenes. It's about to get gory. Like it's Mickey Mouse. But I could feel him tensing up and I looked at the screen and anytime the gorilla was like in a tree looking at Mickey and Mickey didn't know it, he would tense up. And I realized, oh, he's scared of the gorilla. I didn't think Mickey Mouse Clubhouse would be scary, but this particular, we'd watched other episodes, but this particular episode was scaring my son at three and a half. Now, here's what's amazing. I, like, I was like, hey, buddy, do you want to pause it and, and find a different show? He said, yeah. I said, no problem. Let's do it. So we, we found a different show. Here's what's amazing. A couple of months, I'm not talking hours, months later, I'm tucking Trent in. We're doing our bedtime routine. We're praying together and doing, doing all that stuff. As I'm leaving the room, he says, Daddy, can it get in here? I say, what, buddy? He says, I'm just scared that it'll get in. I'm like, can, buddy, let's use our words, can what get in? I I don't know what you're scared of. He's like, I'm just scared of the gorilla. And this is months later. 
like we turn that episode off. It's not like I logged it in my mind, like a gorilla equals bad. Like I'm literally like months later, I'm like, what gorilla is he talking about? Where is this coming from? He said, because there's a tree outside my window and I'm scared that it can climb the tree and get in. And it's all starting to click. Like I'm beginning to remember, oh, <laughs> the gorilla. <laughs> and so I had this conversation with my son and what I realized is, what is clearly artificial and fiction and fake to me, a cartoon gorilla, to him is now a reality because fear became a seed that was watered by worry and now it's real. Two months later, he's asking the question. He never brought it up in the meantime, but now all of a sudden, that night, for whatever reason, can it come in through my window? And so I had this conversation with him. No, buddy, no, it's not real. And the gorilla's friendly. <laughs> he likes Mickey, okay? But what I realized is, what I realized is how often we do that. How often we create big old gorillas in our mind. Because we were afraid at one point of something unknown, something we couldn't control, something we have no idea how it's going to turn out. The circumstances in that moment were so scary to us that we clammed up and we created a category in our brain and we allowed a seed of fear to be planted there. And then we began to water it with worry and anxiety, giving it so much attention and so much strength and operating as if a what if is actually a what is. And that is the problem with anxiety. It turns fiction into reality and we feel it as if it's real. And we all have these gorillas. We all have these things in our mind that will never happen and we spend so much time and energy and effort worrying about them. How was Jesus a non-anxious person? So let's look at this passage. Here's my goal. I just want to look through and pull out maybe five principles or so that I think Jesus models. Some are explicit in this text and some are kind of implicit. They're implied. They're there. But five, five principles that I think are ways of life for Jesus. This is not just exclusive to Matthew 14. I think these are ways of life. And again, I think if we adopt the ways of life from Jesus, our master, it can Make us less anxious. So here we go. Looking back in the beginning of the passage, the first thing you kind of notice about Jesus is his pace of life. His pace of life. So here's what I mean by that. If you read this passage and you read the Gospels as a whole, if you just read about Jesus, one of the things you will notice if you're looking for it is that Jesus regularly seemed busy but never in a hurry. And those are two different things. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, American culture loves hurry. We love hurry. It makes us feel so important. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. I gotta, uh, hey, man, I don't have time right now. I got to go to the next thing. Like, we are so busy, but we're also always in a rush, always. And I'm not immune to that, man. Like, I struggle with this. I just feel like there's so much on the plate, and I'm constantly late to things, and I'm trying to get from the next to the next to the next to the next. And no matter how many things I say no to, the calendar fills up anyway. And I don't know what to do about it. Like, I need to learn from the master. But Jesus seems to have this pace of life. Have you ever noticed that Jesus regularly had time for people? And I know that's a simple thought. Like, oh, of course, he's Jesus, <laughs> right? Like, no, yeah, he's Jesus. He had every right to be the busiest dude in the world and not have time for anybody. And yet he always had time. Somehow he had created a buffer, a margin in his life you ever notice when you're reading a book how there's always a gap between the words and the edge of the page? 
The words never reach the edge of the page. You know why? That's called a margin. Because authors know, printers know, publishers know, if we filled up the entire page, it's too overwhelming. The mind gets overwhelmed with that much information. So they actually create a margin to make your brain rest on the page. Jesus had margin in his life. Jesus was regularly interrupted in his life. Regularly. Most of us think, most of us think that we're doing really, really well, but that's only because our plans are going how they're supposed to go. Uh, C.S. Lewis, philosopher C.S. Lewis said something to the extent of, you learn who you truly are, not when your plans are going according to plans, but when your plans get interrupted. That's when the real you comes out. So how do you respond to people when your plans get interrupted? When someone calls you up and they're in need, but you had something else planned, are you short with them? Are you angry with them? Do you kind of brush it off? Like, how do you respond when you get interrupted? When you're so focused on something else and something keeps interrupting you, how do you respond? I'm not great at it. And yet Jesus seems all the time. Like, always, he's walking somewhere and a crowd presses in on him. His plans got interrupted. He's going somewhere, uh, and someone says, hey, come, come, Jairus says, come heal my daughter. She's about to die. He's going with Jairus, and then a woman who's bleeding for 12 years comes and touches him, and now he's focused on her. Interruption. Even in this passage right here, the passage begins with Jesus inviting his disciples to go and rest. They get to the shore to rest, and there's thousands of people waiting on them. Interruption. But Jesus seems to model his life in a way that there's a pace, there's a rhythm, there's a margin that allows for interruption. And I'm just going to throw this out here, but if your life is based around the American premise that hurry is somehow better, that hurry means you're more important, then you will constantly feel anxious. You'll, you'll feel bound up by your schedule. You'll never, never feel the freedom to actually pause and be present in a moment because you'll always be thinking about what you're supposed to do next. If you live a hurried life, and I'm not saying busy, busyness is one thing. If you live a hurried life, a rushed life, I guarantee you it is contributing to your anxiety because you never know how to just stop and be present with people. You ever try talking to someone and you can tell when they're really listening to you, like a good listener who's repeating what you're saying back and they're empathizing with you and they're giving you the, mm, you know, like those things like, oh, wow, that must be hard. Like you can really tell they're, they're with you versus the people that are like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, looking at their phone a little bit, uh-huh, even texting while they're talking to you. Oh, man, how rude. Jesus always seems to have a pace in his life. This passage begins with an interruption. They were supposed to get there and rest, and a crowd pushed in on them, and he taught them, and now he sends his disciples across the lake. Jesus always paces his life in a way that allows room to be interrupted. And this may not seem that big of a deal to you, and maybe in high school, maybe you don't struggle with this because everything's already kind of set for you in some ways with school and after school, but I'm, if you'll trust me here, when you get down the road and you start to have to control your own schedule, the temptation will be hurry, 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 put more in there, put more in there, people need you. And somehow Jesus managed, the person who could have been the most busy, managed to live an unrushed, unhurried life. One of the reasons we talk about how's your walk with Jesus going one of the reasons that's the phrase is because the Hebrew idea of walking with someone meant friendship, but it's also the idea of pace. How's your walk? How's your three miles an hour faith going? It's a long process, this life with Jesus. He had a pace about his life. This passage begins with interruption, and he allowed for it. The second thing uh, you begin to see 
After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself. One of the things you see Jesus do often is he doesn't just have a pace of life, he has a space in life. Jesus gets alone often. For some of you, that is the most terrifying thing you can think of, right? Extroverts in the room, where are you at? Yeah? Yeah, extroverts, you'll push back on this. Be like, no, man, <laughs> I don't need to be alone. I thrive on people, <laughs> full throttle, right? Like, okay, dude, <laughs> good for you. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about whether you're introverted or extroverted. I, this is beyond that, all right? I'm talking about getting alone so that you can know yourself. There's a band named 21 Pilots. Any fans in the room? Okay. My bad. Wow, I just struck a chord with some haters and okay. Um, all right, but from one of their original albums, they have a song called Car Radio. Anyone know that one? Anyone familiar? Okay. Yeah, I like their earlier stuff personally. But in car radio, the whole premise of the song is that someone stole their car radio and now they have to drive in the car and they have nothing to distract themselves. No music, no radio. And now they're actually forced to deal with their thoughts. And the lyrics of the song describe this as a violent process. It says sometimes quiet is violent. We are so good at distracting ourselves so good at needing to process things that happen to us, needing to process experiences, needing to sit down and reflect, needing to point to specific things and name them. That hurt. That was frustrating. That angered me. Ooh, I need to repent there. And we are so good at not and moving on to the next distraction in our lives. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is probably the key one. Let's be real. This right here. We're so good at moving past what we need to pause on. Why? It goes back to number one, because we're always in a hurry. What's next? What's next? What's next? How can I distract myself? What can I scroll? What can I see? Ooh, what TikToks might be funny? We some island boys. Like we're so good at distracting ourselves with the most idiotic time-wasting things. And look, I'm not coming down on this. Like I think some of those things are hilarious. I'm just saying we have to create space in our life as well to be alone, to be alone with your thoughts to be alone in silence, no phone, no distraction, no friends, to get alone with God for the purpose of listening, for the purpose of reflecting on who you are and who he's made you to be. Start simple. This doesn't have to be a huge complex thing. Start simple, have some basic questions. It could be like, I was happy today when? Think about it. I was sad today when? I felt God stirring me today when? Like, just have open-ended questions. Reflect on the day. Take 10 minutes and start to build this rhythm. The problem is most of us are so terrified with being alone that we don't even know we're terrified to be alone. We, we fill every gap in our life with someone or something, the fear of missing out. Oh, who's doing what? Well, I was scheduled to be alone, but hey, they're going to Waffle House, man. I better go. Like, just stop. Be alone. Have a joy of missing out for a change. Be with God. You don't have to be included in everything. You don't have to get plugged into everything. You don't have to always be around people. Let me say it this way. Your generation struggles with loneliness more than any other generation ever, ever. You will always be lonely if you never learn how to be alone. If your satisfaction in this life is contingent upon always being with other people, always have something getting your attention, never having to deal with your emotions, you will always be lonely. People who 
can process what they're feeling and identify those emotions and talk about them in a healthy way, know where to put them, know how to ground them, know who to go with them, are people who are self-aware and have allowed self-awareness to lead to self-management. And that doesn't come when you're constantly distracted. You have to get alone with God. You have to build that space if you're going to begin to learn those things about yourself. If not, I'm just telling you, it will lead to more anxiety and more loneliness. Just throwing that out there. All right, third thing, what do we see Jesus doing? He, he went up to a mountain by himself. What was he doing on the mountain? He was praying. Now, that's kind of like, okay, cool, Jesus answer. Yeah, let's pray. Yeah, I get that. All right, but there's different ways to pray. You guys get that, right? Like some prayer is like where you intercede for people or things, like you're, you're praying on behalf of something or someone. But some prayer is reflective prayer. You, you, are, you are literally posturing yourself before God and you are trying your hardest to just abide. This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. You are, you are posturing yourself to remain in Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, and you are beginning to discern where he's moving and you're joining him in those movements. You're not praying to ask God to bless everything that you want. You are joining him where God is moving. You're not taking all of these things to God with your own huge agenda and saying, God, would you come into this? You are waiting for the spirit to reveal his agenda. One of the things Jesus models time and time again is this prayer, this reflective prayer, where he would get alone by himself for the purpose of prayer, to listen to where God is moving and join him there. Before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, you guessed it, a night of sleepless prayer, what was he doing? Listening to who God wanted him to choose, not just assuming it for himself. Multiple times, Jesus would get alone and away. His disciples would be like, dude, where, where is he? What is he doing? And when they'd finally find him, he'd be like, oh, I was praying. Like, okay, cool. But you know there's tons of people waiting on you right now. In the beginning of Mark's gospel, this happens. And they're like, Jesus, there's a whole town waiting on you. And Jesus, what does he say? No, we're going to this town over here. How did Jesus know which town to go to? It's because he listened to the Spirit and where the Spirit was putting emphasis. So many of us go through life in a reactive way. Something happens to us, we react to it. Something says, someone says something to us we, we don't like, we say something back. Something happens to us that we don't like, we get angry. We, we, we get upset. We start to plot and scheme and think about how to get even or get revenge or whatever. We start talking poorly about people. We slander them behind their back. We include them in our prayer request list. So many, so many of us react to life. When we posture ourselves in reflective prayer, when we listen to where the Spirit is moving, we begin to respond, not react. We know how God is moving and we follow. We feel where the Spirit is putting gravity and we join Him. It's so different. You know, my kids, I have kids. Um, I know, I know. It's easy to forget. Uh, you know, they're at that age, man. They're throwing tantrums. They're learning. <laughs> Tommy. They're, they're learning emotions. They have emotions. And, you know, part of the tension as a parent is how do I foster emotions, because it's good to, to feel that. I don't want to, you know, snuff that out. How do I foster, but also teach them how to control? Yeah. Not be controlled by, but control. And so one of the things we do um, when my kids get really, really upset, instead of just saying, hey, calm down, buddy, calm down. They don't know what that means. So one of the things we do is, is I guide them in a calming method. And so I'll hold my fingers in front of them, and we'll pretend they're flowers. 
I say, all right, buddy. I say, all right, buddy, smell the flowers. Big breath. And, you know, like my middle child right now is everything's a tantrum. I can't. Uh, buddy, we, let's just, let's smell the flowers. And so he'll, <laughs> smells. And then I'll hold one finger up and I'll say, all right, blow, blow out the candle. And he, <sighs> smell the flowers. And we do this like five times. <sighs> what am I teaching them? I'm teaching them to pause in a moment, reflect on how you feel, and control. Control your emotions. Identify them. Let's talk about why you're sad. Let's talk about why you're upset. But control them. This is what, this is what reflective prayer does. It prevents us from just going off the rails with our emotions and, re- and reacting to everything. It aligns us with the Spirit. It, it's, it's spiritual breathing. It, it makes us in tune to how we should respond in this moment and be able to identify what's going on so that we can better understand the movements of the Spirit. Jesus did this often. So in your life, how often is your anxiety or your worry or your fear due to you reacting to scenarios? Something happens and you just start to, oh man, worst case scenario, what if this happens? What if that happens? Oh, I'm so afraid. Oh man, oh God. Like all these reactive thoughts and emotions you have, what would begin to happen if instead you first paused and said, you know what? Before I react, let me just go pray. Let me posture myself with God and just listen for how he's moving. Let me just breathe with the Spirit a minute. How different would your life be if when scenarios came along, instead of just knee-jerk reaction, when someone texts you something and you, oh, I'll text them back. What if you just paused and you went to pray, reflective prayer, listen to the Spirit and see what He's saying? How different would our emotions be? What else does Jesus model here? I think He models community, number four. Now, this is implicit. It's not like He, like somewhere in here is like, oh, by the way, community is good for you. <laughs> but... One of the things you do see Jesus doing, God in the flesh, is he builds a community around himself. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, you are created in the image of God, and God himself is a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if you're created in that image, one of the things you need, not just, not just it's good for you, you need it to function and thrive is a community. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, hey, have a ton of friends who barely know you because you put on a mask and you pretend well. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about people who fully know you because you, you're able to take the mask off through having the courage to be vulnerable and love you in the midst of your crap. That's what I mean. Who are committed to you, who will show up when you need it. You'll show up for them. You'll say the hard stuff to each other. You'll extend grace and mercy to one another. You'll forgive each other of each other's sins that you actually walk through life together. Do you have that in your life? Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not anti-technology at all. Like, I'm not anti-phone. I'm not anti-technology. But, like, let's be honest about technology. They are selling you something that is not true. You guys know that, right? They do not have your best interests in mind. They, they, they make profit off of algorithms and predictabilities and fear and clickbait and all this stuff. And one of the things, and it's a beautiful lie, I like the way they've orchestrated it is really magnificent, but it is a lie. One of the things they've convinced you of is that you can actually have community through social media. You cannot. Followers are not friends. Likes on a picture does not mean they know you. When you watch an influencer on social media and they're like, yo, what up family? They're not family, all right? You, you don't know these people. 
And it's fun and it's cool to engage that way and I'm not opposed to it. I, I, man, there's some, there, there are some people out there who leverage social media to do amazing things in this world and raise money for people in need and get awareness out there and I think that's amazing. But we have to understand that community is different than connectivity. You are connected to people through social media. Community is doing life together over long periods of time. Experiencing the same things together, sharing emotions, sharing experiences, enduring together, digging deep with one another. That is the value of proximity. When you have people in your life that are three feet away, an arm's length away, that is when you begin to, to be known. That's when you begin to lower your guard. That's when you actually begin to understand life done in partnership with other people. And Jesus created that with his disciples. And if you think about it, it's pretty profound because God in the flesh could have gone about it any number of ways, could have gone about the rescue mission any number of days, and one of the things he put a value on is, hey, as we bring about the kingdom of God, we're actually going to build a community. He didn't just bring helpers along and delegate tasks, he actually built friendships with his disciples. It is one of the things you absolutely need to have a healthy life. And so do people know you? Have you bought into the lie that you can find community through a hundred people that you don't know on a social media platform? Or are you allowing the mask to come off with people who are in your proximity? You're allowing vulnerability and authentic relationships to take place because you're committed to one another, you're committed time to each other through healthy means of communication and, and all of those wonderful things. Is that happening in your life? If not, I guarantee there's anxiety springing out of the fact that you, you don't feel known, you don't feel loved. Jesus seems to model community. And then finally, this is amazing to me, he models risk. Now, risk might seem counterintuitive. Like you might be like, oh no, dude, like, whoa, 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 I'm an anxious person. <laughs> I'm fearful. So risk is like the last thing I need. No, I would argue with that. I'd push back on that in a heartbeat. Think about this. Jesus intentionally, this is not accidentally, intentionally, creates opportunities for his disciples that they have no idea what to do. And he leaves them there. You ever think about that? Like this storm right here, Jesus is just watching for a minimum of nine hours. He's just up on the mountain watching his disciples. Nine hours, potentially 12 hours. He allows risk. This to me is one of the most, this, this is like one of the most blind things we've con convinced ourselves of. And, and honestly, like it, it kind of happened in my generation. Growing up, um, we didn't have a ton of rules. Uh, my generation didn't. Like it was basically you leave and you're back by dark. No cell phones, no nothing. It was awesome. And so one of the things I see in my generation, millennials, as they parent, I'll go to the park with my kids. I have kids. I'll go to the park with my kids and I'll see all these other millennial parents, my age parents, and their parenting style can be summed up in two words. Do you know what those two words are? No, no, that's, that is, I'm not even sure that is one word. I think that's something else. Two words, millennial parenting. You know what it is? Be careful. Okay, it's, it's, it's be careful. It's like we grew up with so many risks and all of a sudden we went to the other end of the pendulum and millennial parents with their kids are just like, hey, be, be careful. And I'll be on the playgrounds and dude, I've seen kids like on the playground. I'm not trying to throw stones here, man. But I've seen kids on the playground like their parents are putting bicycle helmets on them before they go down a slide. And I'm like, oh my, okay. Like we can't bubble wrap life all the time, man. And one of the, one of the byproducts of that is like 
a generation is learning that everything is dangerous. Everything is dangerous. Somehow we gotta be careful of everything. There's a gorilla everywhere. I gotta be super, super careful. I can never take a risk. And Jesus like has the complete opposite approach. Yeah, get in the boat. Here comes a hurricane. I'll see you in 12 hours. Rich young ruler runs up to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Jesus is like, why don't you give up your fortune? That's risky. But what would I do without my money? Ah, let's figure it out together. That's a risk. Jesus calls us into risky faith and he puts his disciples into risky moments. Why? Because he just <laughs> loves watching them suffer? No, so that they can learn dependency on him and endurance through the hard times. It, that trait, that quality is becoming more and more absent. Emotional endurance. We bump up against hard times, we don't know what to do. So we distract ourselves. We bump up against hard times, we don't know what to do. So we opt out. We, don't, we bump up against hard times, we don't know what to do. So we ask our parents to do it for us. Emotional endurance comes through embracing risk in our lives. And this is just me, and like I get, I'm talking to high schoolers here, and you know, take this with a grain of sand or salt, whatever they call it. Um, one day when your parents, you'll figure it out, you'll do whatever you want to do, but this is just me. I would totally rather my kid climb up a tree and fall and break his arm than me never letting him climb in the first place. That's just me. Like, there's risk in this world. We can't bubble wrap every single thing. And it seems to me that one of the things Jesus did often with his disciples is introduce risk. Some sense of getting them outside of their comfort zone. And this is antithetical to American ways of thinking. I get that because comfort is king. But I'm just telling you, comfort and growth do not go hand in hand. Risk and growth do. So take some risks. And I know you're thinking, but dude, I struggle with anxiety. I don't want to take risks. I know, I know, I know. But hear me out. It is paradoxical, I'll admit. But it's like the more risks we take, I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm not saying, hey, go base jump right now. I'm, I'm just saying, like, start small. Like, get out of your comfort zone. Trust Jesus with something. Don't bubble wrap your life. Learn emotional endurance through taking a risk. Challenge yourself. Go past what you, your perceived limitations are. You will begin to learn so much more about yourself and so much more about Jesus than you ever knew. The disciples in this moment learned that Jesus could walk on water. They didn't know that before. It took a nine-hour storm, but they learned that. In fact, they learned that with enough faith, they could walk on water. They had no idea. It took a risk. If we avoid risks our entire life, we will only ever live in the fear of what could happen. But somehow, following Jesus and, and embracing risk as a way of life, I'm not talking about foolishness, hear me, but embracing risk, challenge, teaches us dependency and emotional endurance that actually combats fear and anxiety. So one of the things that's amazing to me is, um, we'll close with this thought, Matthew 8 is this other story, this storm story. Matthew 8, 23, they're also in a storm on a boat. And Jesus calms the weather in that story. Everything gets calm. Everything turns off. And verse 27, the men marveled at Jesus saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? In Matthew 8, they had no category. They did not know what to do with a man who could speak to the weather. Because in Jewish ways of thinking, only God can speak to the weather. In the Old Testament, prophets would call upon God to control the weather, but never to the weather themselves. 
And so they had no idea what to do with this Jewish rabbi who just calmed a storm. And they asked themselves, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Now look at Matthew chapter 14. When Jesus calms the storm, here's how they respond in verse 32. If we could throw verse 32 up. Matthew 14, 32. The disciples say this. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. There is something about embracing risk time and time again that begins to teach us who Jesus really is. The first go-around, they were like, who is this that speaks to the wind and the waves? The second go-around, they were like, you're God. You're God. It's not that they weren't afraid. I'm not saying be fearless. But Jesus seems to teach us how to have courage in the midst of fear. How to understand who he is in the midst of fear. How to be dependent upon him in the midst of fear and anxiety. These ways of life... Pacing your life, finding a space in your life, reflective prayer, building a community, embracing risk, learning dependency on Jesus, all of these things seem to combat anxiety. So you kind of have two options. We're left with kind of two options. One option is fix every problem in your life. That's one option. Anyone ever tried that? Okay. You know it doesn't work. You can't fix everything. It's, it's an endless game of whack-a-mole. Like you pff, whack one and, oh, there pops another or two or three or whatever. And even if you ever reach a season in life where you feel like you're like laying on the game, you got all the moles covered, <laughs> all of a sudden the game like extends itself. And you're like, oh, I didn't know life could do that. And now you've got something else. You can't fix every problem in your life. And yet that tends to be the approach we try. It's like, oh, let's, let's, that's how I'm going to deal with my anxiety. Just keep fixing things. Keep fixing things. You can't. The other option and in my opinion, a better option, is to somehow reach a place that I think that Jesus was training his disciples for, to reach a place where you yield your control. Jesus could have calmed the storm earlier, and he didn't. In Matthew chapter 8, the disciples cry out immediately. In Matthew chapter 14, they endure the storm. There seems to be something going on in in the method of Jesus that is building them up you yield your control and you entrust yourself to Jesus. It's not that the storms go away, but, it, but there's something there where it's like, well, guys, we're in the storm again. Let's endure until Jesus intercedes. Well, how long will that be? I don't know, but let's endure. Well, do you, like, do you know what this is going to look like? No, but he won't let us sink. That much I do know, so let's endure. seems like the more you try to control your own life, the more problems arise. But when you yield your life to Jesus, you can reach a place of satisfaction, not delight in your circumstances, like, ooh, I love storms. No, but like satisfaction that Jesus is good. I know he's present. He will not let me drown. This is hard, but I will lean on him. A yielded life to Jesus where we can embrace the circumstances of life, not control them, but embrace them, and entrust ourselves to Jesus. This seems to be the ways of our master, our king. Again, I'm not saying, hey man, this will cure every anxiety you have. I'm just saying, I think this way of living is so different than the American way of thinking. I think it can bring peace and calmness and a stillness to a worried mind. In fact, I think that's what Jesus promises multiple places. So will you yield the control you're trying to have Will you adopt the ways of Jesus and embrace peace? 
in the midst of the circumstances. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And uh, Jesus, you are, you are the master. Like the, the ways you model life, the principles of life, the pace, the space, getting alone, the prayer, reflecting, listening, the community, and Jesus, the risk, getting us out of our comfort zone. Those seem to be, it's not the exhaustive list, there's so many more, but from this passage, those seem to be things that would contribute towards creating a non-anxious person. Things that would be the counter cycle to the things that create anxiety. Jesus, we live in a culture and a world dominated by fear. We've been convinced that there's gorillas everywhere and they might come in. Seeds of fear watered by anxiety, worry, creates a reality in our minds. Jesus, in your word, John 14, you say that you are peace. That you give us your peace. That, that the peace of God is a person. It's your spirit in us. And so we pray for that peace, which surpasses all understanding, that you would help us entrust ourselves to you and adopt your ways of life. We pray, Jesus, you would give us the courage to maybe think about, consider some of these things. Try them out. See how they fit. See how they feel. See what effect they have. And Jesus, I do pray over this room. So many worried students, so much anxiety, so much fear. Remind them that you are peace, that you are comfort, that you are near and with them. That you're not angry or upset with them. You want to help them. You want to pull them out of the water. Would you show us how? We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.